I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word, this time to the New Testament, our book, our text rather, uh, this morning is at the end of the book of Matthew. You can find this uh, on page uh, 835 of the Pew Bibles in the rack in front of you. Uh, we've come uh, to the end of a uh, nearly two-year-long sermon series uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, I was thankful to have uh, Jim preach uh, those verses last week on the report of the guard. Uh, Jim has this incredible ability to be assigned pretty boring texts uh, and turn them into wonderful sermons. Uh, so I don't know what happens if I start giving him the good texts like I've got this morning. Uh, but I saved the Great Commission for me, uh, just for me to close with. Uh, our ending mission as Jesus sends us out. We've been with him now in lengthy periods in Matthew's Gospel when he walks us through different teaching and different seasons. We've been in uh, weeks and weeks of parables. We've been in weeks and weeks of accounts or uh, uh, narratives of what he's done and miracles he's performed. Uh, we have been in lengthy sermons that Jesus himself has preached. Chapter 24 and 25, all looking towards the end. Uh, we have been in Matthew recording the suffering uh, of Christ uh, in chapters 26 and 27. We've now gloriously been a couple weeks in the resurrection of Jesus. And now our final word, uh, our final few verses, uh, is his word of command. Matthew fast forwards through a number of different appearances uh, that other gospel authors tell us after the resurrection. He gives us none of these. He brings us up uh, to Galilee, up on the mountain, uh, and gives the final great commission, the final mission statement, the final instruction for his 11 disciples, and to them, and through them, to the church until uh, the return of Christ. I know these words are familiar. I invite you to hear them again uh, afresh this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 20, uh, verse 16, excuse me, through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, as we often pray when we come to such familiar verses, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to believe. We don't pray particularly today that you would show us something fresh or new or different or profound. I pray that you would take those old truths that we know and we believe and you would press them in new and fresh ways upon our hearts. And we would hear them not with tired ears, but with eager ears, eager to hear and to believe and to live as you have called your people and your church to do so. And even as we begin, we pray, but we will pray at the end, that your gospel and your kingdom truly will, by your power and blessing, go to the very ends of the earth. 
and that you, Lord Jesus, will return. You will return quickly. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Some of you are fans of the old spy movies called Mission Impossible. There's lots of them. They've come in different times and eras with different actors, but they all begin the same way. A message comes to our hero, our spy that's going to go do something uh, wonderful throughout the rest of the movie. And the message comes, and the spy opens the message, and it says, some of you can quote it, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and then fill in the blank with the mission or the instructions, usually something impossible. That's the point of the movie. Our hero has been told to do something impossible, and then he'll do the re- spend the rest of the movie accomplishing uh, the impossible. It makes for uh, a great movie. Doesn't make for such a great mission statement for an organization or for a church, right? If you want to state your mission or your organization's statement or purpose or goals, it should be something possible, right? <laughs> something attainable, something achievable, Something we could put our heads together and we could study and we could plan and we could achieve a mission. But if we were to hear the opening verses that Jesus commands his disciples to do for the rest of their lives and the rest of the mission and ministry of the church, it would rightly be called Mission Impossible. I mean, just look at it. Just on the surface, 11 guys are supposed to make disciples of all nations. That's it. Now go watch this fun two-hour movie about how this impossible mission is brought about, right? These, two, these are guys who have been hiding, who have been scared, who have been running away from Jesus, are now to be on the front lines of carrying this very news, this very gospel, to the ends of the earth. It sounds impossible. It, frankly, is impossible. Were we to read verse 19 by itself, make disciples, it would be utterly impossible. The good news is our impossible verse is sandwiched by promises of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. The mission itself is impossible, but once the, risen, the, once the power of the risen Jesus is added to the mission in verses 18 and 20, kind of surrounding our impossible task, are the person and the power and the promises of Jesus. Once he's added to the equation, the impossible becomes possible. What I want to show you this morning is that our impossible mission is made possible by the power of the risen Jesus. Our impossible mission, make disciples of the nations, is made possible by the power of the risen Jesus. Now, how are we going to get there? Well, we have a couple verses that set the scene for us a totally different scene of anything that we have been around for a long time in Matthew. Uh, He's been in Jerusalem since, what, chapter 21. We've been with Jesus in Jerusalem. And now we pick up with the 11 disciples have gone to Galilee. Why Galilee? Uh, You remember two weeks ago after the resurrection, Jesus told the women uh, who were there at the tomb to go and tell the 11 to meet him in Galilee. So Matthew's now taken us a couple weeks later. Right? Time for them to travel all the way from Jerusalem back up to Galilee for Jesus to meet them there, particularly to meet them on a mountain. Good things happen when God appears on a mountain. Particularly in Matthew's Gospel, the last time we saw him significantly on a mountain was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. 
We saw him as transfiguration, his glory shown on the mountain. So something of significance is going to happen when the 11 disciples arrive at the mountain. And they get there, and they see Jesus, and they worship him, and it turns out it's just the same normal 11 guys, because they also doubt. Ain't nothing special about these guys quite yet, right? They're just like you and me. They're afraid. They can be cowards. They can be uncertain. And even here, after the resurrection of Jesus, after some of their group has seen him, after most of them have seen him, after one of them has touched him, even now they go to meet him where he's told them to meet them on the mountain. They see him, they worship him, and they doubt. This isn't to say that sort of six of them were believers and five of them weren't. That's not that at all. It's the reality that often for fallen people who believe, doubt can be intermingled with our belief. And that they can have a hard time believing the very thing they see before their eyes. And so it is into this context, that last word describing them, of doubt that Jesus speaks these final words. This isn't the troops on the front line, rip-roaring and ready to go, and Jesus gives them the final pep talk. No, it's the guys in the locker room thinking, that other team sounds scary. I'm not sure I'm going to go out there, right? This is Jesus speaking to people to men, to his brothers, who he described, called them earlier, words of power, even in their doubt. I want you to see the structure now, the meat of our sermon, verses 18, 19, and 20. The words of Jesus himself. himself. And there's a, a clear structure here that there's a command in the middle to go do something, to make disciples. But around that command, what they're supposed to do, sandwiched around that, beginning and end, is who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Verse 18 and verse 20 is who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So even in the midst of their command, uh, they're supposed to obey. Even in their doubt, they worship. And though they doubt, they obey Jesus. They are surrounded, beginning and end, top and bottom, outside, inside, with the person and the promises of Jesus. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel. That makes me feel pretty good, right? (laughs) Their final marching orders are there in the middle of who Jesus is and what he does. So that's actually the order we're going to follow. We're going to see Jesus, us, and Jesus. And I hope you see that that's right where we want to be. Not out in front of him, not behind him, right there in Christ, our Savior. In all of these, I want you to see the power to do the impossible. The power of the risen Jesus to do the impossible. And there are three expressions of his power. Number one, the power of his authority. Verse 18. The power of his authority. Look how his words begin. How is he going to describe himself to doubting people? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority. The power to rule. The power, if somebody says, your wish is my command, right? The power not only to say something, but that what you say is then accomplished, is then brought about. The the power that your will must be obeyed, particularly in the context of rule, of exercising government, authority, power, will and command, spoken and executed. Now, Jesus has some type of authority, he tells us. He describes it first as global authority in heaven and on earth. 
That by using those sort of two opposite extremes, heaven and earth, that means here, there, and everywhere in between. He has authority everywhere. There's nowhere there isn't an expression of his authority. Sort of at the end of the account of his life, kind of the ways in which Jesus was somewhat veiled in Matthew's gospel, the veil is sort of now removed. Right? The way that our Lord shows himself in his humility, right, in his uh, physical limitations here on earth, uh, that is sort of uh, expressly removed here. We see these glimpses of it in the miracles he performs, but then it's just kind of back to ordinary life. And then it's a miracle, and then sort of back to ordinary life. Here are now authority without limits. How much of it? All authority. Jesus uses that word all four times in these final three verses. Here's the first one. How much authority? All authority. He's the top of the chain, right? You know when you have a problem and you call uh, the customer service line, right? Your computer's not working, right? Your newest technology, right? Your grandkids got you for Christmas. You can't figure it out. Call the helpline, right? You get somebody, the first person that answers, can they usually help? No. They're usually, all they say is, well, if you turned it off and turned it on again, right? I did that. And they say, hold on, let me get somebody else. You bump up the chain, right? You talk to somebody else. They try to walk you through it. Doesn't work. You sit, you're just playing the game until you get somebody else. You want somebody that has authority to give you your money back, right? Authority to send you a new product. And you're just kind of working your way up the chain until you finally get to the one with the authority. Well, here's Jesus saying, I have all the authority, all of it, in heaven and on earth and everywhere in between. It's all mine. It's a global expression of his authority. Except there's one place he doesn't have it. Look how the verse continues. It's been given to me, the end of verse 18. Someone, something, gave authority to Jesus. He doesn't say who. Uh, at this point, hopefully, you've read this far in Matthew's gospel. You can understand when he uses a passive verb for something like this, right? The implied uh, doer of the verb is God. So God the Father has given authority to Jesus. So here is this picture that he, the Son, God the Son, does not now express authority over his own Father. Rather, the Father gives that he delegates it, in a sense, to Christ. And then from him, Jesus exercises authority over everything. This is a picture of kingship. When you look at the history of Israel, this is how God works through his chosen kings. God relates with the king through the king God relates with everybody. We could go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew. I'm not going to quiz you two years ago who remembered that sermon on the first chapter in Matthew, but it's this genealogy of all the people Jesus came from. And one of them is he's the son of David. David, God's king, through whom God rules over the world. A mediatorial kingship. That's now who Jesus is. He is great David's greater son. He is now exalted into that place of authority under God over the entire world, over the entire universe. The promise of chapter one with the announcement of a child born in the manger has now come to fulfillment at the end of chapter 28 when he really is that king. He's a better David. He's a better Solomon. He's better than all of them. He's the king over all. A few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 2, 
as a way to help us understand what's going on with Jesus. And Psalm 2 speaks of God's king, and it speaks very descriptively of the nations. How many of our children remember what the nations are doing? The nations are raging. The nations revolt. The nations challenge the king. The nations uh, uh, rage against him. You think of a raging sea, the tumult of a wind-tossed sea and the waves crashing. This is the nations. This is where we see the opposition to Jesus and the trials and the suffering and the mockery and the torture. All of it is the nations raging against God's king. And yet what happens at the end? Here is the son. Here he is enthroned on high. Here he is submitting for a time to the authority of earthly powers, but not anymore. Now he is raised and he is exalted over all. And what do the nations do that rage against the Son? And when he is exalted, they are to kiss the Son, to bow in faith and submission to God's King. Here on display is the power of his authority, the authority that only Jesus, as the risen king, has. Now, it's from this authority that we come to our second expression of power. Because now, Jesus takes all of that he's just spoken to his disciples, and he turns it into now instructing them what to do. We see uh, verse 19 begins with the word go. We'll come back to that, but that word therefore. Based on everything Jesus has just said about himself, Here now comes the command of the king over heaven and earth who has all authority. Here are now his specific instructions for his people. Here is the mission, we might say, of the disciples. And it's summarized in just these two words, make disciples. Make disciples. Here in uh, these verses of command that Jesus gives, there are four verbs One of them is clearly the main uh, imperative, I'm telling you what to do verb, and that is to go make disciples. Jesus has been making followers of him throughout his ministry. That's what a disciple is, a follower of Jesus. If we want to know what making disciples looks like, we can go right back through the book of Matthew. When Jesus calls people to come and follow him. He calls people to leave uh, their worldly life, to leave their idols, to lay down their uh, idolatrous rebellion against him, to silence their unbelief by faith in Christ and coming to follow him. This is what Jesus has been doing, making followers of himself. And now as he leaves, he is instructing his followers that it is now their turn. It's now their turn to make disciples of Jesus. It is now their turn to call people out of unbelief into trusting in Christ. It is now to call people to turn from rebellious idolatry and worship the living and true God as revealed through his Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It is now the call to lay down our arms of rebellion and hatred and raging against God and to submit to him through his King, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. You see, this this definition of a a follower of Christ puts a, a finer point on it, doesn't it? I mean, we can ask one another, are you a Christian? And that's a fairly simple answer, question to answer, yes or no. But to ask one another if you're a disciple, that, that kind of puts a sharper point on it. Disciple implies following Christ. 
It implies a laying down of our lives to follow him. It implies not only once upon a time trusting him, but actively turning from my sin and trusting him today and planning by God's grace to trust him tomorrow. It's a fair question to pause this morning and ask of ourselves, am I a disciple? Am I just going through the motions? Am I singing empty words? Do I care little about what he actually says? Am I just going through the motions or... Am I following Christ? Am I aiming and trying and failing and repenting and returning to following Jesus? If you are not, God's word simply teaches us that we are called to the path of discipleship by simply repenting and believing, by turning from sin and following after Jesus, and turning from sin again and following after him all of the more. It is the call that everyone who hears the proclamation of the gospel, that they would turn and they would follow him. Jesus is making disciples. Now, where is this mission to take place? He calls these guys back to Galilee. There's 11 of them. They're from Galilee. It would make sense for him to say to them, all right, you're home. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all of Galilee. And they would think, all right, I think we can do that, right? We know the street neighborhoods, right? You go where you're from, I'll go where I'm from. We can kind of divvy up Galilee and we can make disciples of everyone here. But he doesn't tell them that. He tells them to make disciples where? Of all nations. Second time, he uses the word all here. So no nation is excluded from this. Every tribe and every tongue and every language and every people are the where of where God is sending his disciples to go and make more disciples. Nothing less than going to the very nations. Just as Jesus functions as the better David, as the king, he is here the better Abraham. Back to Matthew chapter one, a son of Abraham. Abraham is the one through whom the nations are to be blessed. Here is Jesus, who is the blessed one through whom the rest of the nations will be blessed. And he has all the authority to send out these disciples to the very ends of the earth to carry forth that message and that blessing. Unlike the movie Mission Impossible, there is no, if you choose to accept it, with this mission. This is the king. He's telling his church what to do and where to go. Now he gives us a final help here uh, in the rest of this command. He tells us how to do it. I told you there's four verbs. The main verb is to make disciples. He gives us three more. And get all geeky here. These are participles added to this main verb. They get the the same oomph of the command verb. Uh, And so we are to go, uh, we are to baptize, and we are to teach. Now, where the verb appears in relation to the main verb is important. And so we see that word go appear first. It comes with the strength of that imperative to make disciples. geeky language stuff aside, what that means is go is not simply as you happen to be going, make disciples. There is an explicit and specific command from Jesus to his disciples to go. Not as you're going, not as you go, but go and make disciples. He is sending them forth from where they have 
come and gathered to go forth to the ends of the earth. This is a significant turning point in all of biblical history. Because up until this point, all of the force, all of the oomph, right, all of the, 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 the what's the, the physics word for it, right, the, the centripetal force is inward, right, in the Bible. Right? God blesses Abraham, the nations come to Abraham. God blesses David and Solomon, the nations come to David and Solomon. God gives Jesus as a savior to his people, the, the nations, the magi come and see Jesus. It's come, it's come, it's come to where God blesses. Now, that force turns. And that inward force is now turned, and it's a centrifugal force. It is now going outward. It goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and out to the very ends of the earth. The resurrected Jesus and the Great Commission changes everything about the trajectory, the force of world history. We don't now go about our business hoping God brings the nations to us to be blessed. No, now he actively commands his church to go and go make disciples. The nations cannot be reached without purposeful going. The second supporting verb here is the verb baptize. So make disciples, how? Go, number one, baptize. Uh, number two, baptize, baptism is the application of water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is setting apart followers of Jesus from the rest of the nations. It is now a new sign where people from every nation, they still have their own culture, their own language, their own uh, uh, accent and clothes and everything individual to them and their place, but now receiving baptism, they are marked as coming into the people of God. It is the universal marker that sets apart people from every nation as God's people, as God's children. It represents here the initial coming to Christ that happens as the gospel is go, goes forth and is proclaimed to every tribe and tongue and nation. And then our third verb here is to teach. To teach, sort of the, the bookends of discipleship. Not only to baptize and make converts, but also an ongoing ministry of teaching. An ongoing ministry of, uh, of growing up in the truth. That the church is to continually teach what Jesus says and what he does. They are to, we are to teach the, the deposit of the gospel. That faithful church ministry means hearing and listening and taking that and passing it on by teaching it to the next generation. That the church is marked by receiving in through baptism and training up uh, through teaching. How much teaching? Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's our third time, all. So if it takes 87 sermons to get through Matthew, it takes 87 sermons, right? All, teach them everything. Disciples are made and reproduced through teaching. Disciples love to receive teaching. This is how disciples are made. Going, baptizing, and teaching. At Covenant Reformed, we summarize this in our mission statement, which is to gather and grow disciples in Asheville to the ends of the earth. That idea of gathering and growing, of bringing in and raising up. And this is not an option for us. Jesus gives this command uh, to his church to go and tell to the ends of the earth. 
Now, that's impossible. This method and this mission is impossible without Jesus. And so, as he does, he brings us back. He doesn't close with what we do. He closes with who he is. Our final verse is the power now of his ability. We have the power of his authority. We have the power of our activity, number two, what we do. And the power of his ability. Because what we do would be nothing without him. You know that experience uh, when your power goes out at your house uh, and you sort of you get used to it, you kind of sit on the couch, you're reading by an open window, and then you go to the closet, and what do you do? You go and flip the switch because you forgot the power's out, right? Oh, right, and then you go back about your business, and then you go in the kitchen, you open the fridge. Oh, wait, the power's out, right? And you kind of go through your daily life, but there's no power. It's all kind of worthless and pointless, right? And then the power clicks on. And, like, the house just comes back to life, right? I mean, everything starts beeping and buzzing, and screens come on, and lights come on, the AC kicks on. In our house, the printer starts acting up, right, when the power comes on. It's like everything's boom, is infected with life. That's what it's like for ordinary doubters like you and me to go about ordinary tasks. It's worthless without him, but with the power of Jesus, it's everything. Those regular little tasks filled with his power, now can accomplish the impossible. Look how he closes. Second part of verse 20, and behold, I am with you always. What a comfort to us. He's always with us. Here's our fourth use of the word all. Literally, it's all days. So always, for every day. He's always there. He's always with us to the end of the age. He's told us the age will end when he returns. He, we don't know when he returns, so we're still in that age. And the fact that Jesus has not returned might frustrate some of us, but you know what it means? It means he's still with us. If he hadn't returned yet, he's still with us. But it's more than just a comfort. There's a confidence here. There's a presence with a purpose. And the purpose is to accomplish the mission that he has sent us to accomplish. He's not here just to comfort us, though he certainly does that. He's also here to enable us. This scene, this is almost a commissioning scene. He's setting these guys apart to go and accomplish the mission. I mean, you could picture a military commissioning with all the fanfare and all the symbolism around an officer set apart to accomplish the task in the U.S. military. And all of the, everything around it signifies that you're not alone. That you go forth with the strength and the power of the entire U.S. armed forces to accomplish that mission. This is the symbolism surrounding Jesus. The ability of Christ is unlimited. He opens doors. He opens mouths that were once silent to speak the gospel. And most powerfully, he opens hearts to believe. He goes with us wherever we go. His presence is our power. So how do we think today, 2,000 years later, in a room with 120 of us, how do we obey this great commission? I want you to think about it two ways. Think about how we make disciples together, how we make disciples individually. 
To put it bluntly, these 11 guys could not fulfill this. They just couldn't. They could not, all 11 of them, travel to every nation to the ends of the earth, right? It is geographically or technically impossible. We rightly understand that God is speaking to them and through them to his church. And that it's actually the whole church. It takes the whole church to accomplish this. It takes the church going to every place to the very ends of the earth. It takes churches praying and sending people. It takes churches serving one another. It takes small and humble expressions of God's faithful people working together to make disciples to the ends of the earth. I wonder if you took an 18-year-old at our church and you went back and looked at his 18 years at Covenant Reformed and you counted up how many people served and prayed and gave and worked that that one person would be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It takes the church, the church working together, the church serving and using our gifts. However God has made us, wherever God has placed us, whatever season we are in, that the church as a whole might together go forth and make disciples. But if we're doing it together, it means that we're each doing something individually. And I want to challenge you as we close this sermon, this text, this book. How are you? going about in your life making disciples? I hope the first part of your answer is, well, I'm coming to church and I'm serving the body of Christ. But God calls and he challenges every one of us. I believe that we should consider each individually if we're called to go to the mission field. Are we the ones that are being called to be sent out by this church to the very ends of the earth? Are we the ones being called to go into full-time ministry to preach and proclaim uh, the gospel of grace regularly and for our life. Or maybe we're not called to go to the ends of the earth. Maybe we're called to go across the street. We're called to go down the hall. We're called to talk to the kid at the desk next to us at school. Where can you go this very week with prayer and purpose to tell of this resurrected Jesus? We're going to sing the, the closing hymn, Give of Your Sons, to bear the message glorious. Give of your wealth to speed them on their way. Give, I'm sorry, pour out your soul for them in prayer victorious. It's a going, it's a giving, it's a praying, but this is all our activity. So we close where Jesus closes with who he is. We go in faith, holding fast to the promises of God. Jesus ends where he began. He began in chapter 1 with the promise that he is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. It's the subtitle of this sermon series. From beginning to end, how does he end? I am with you. He is Emmanuel. He is the one who is with us to the end of the age. When the dwelling place of God is with man, from here to then he is with us. And from then to eternity, he is with us. Let us go and make disciples. For he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you would send us forth. We pray with confidence, for you have told us that your gospel goes forth through humble, doubting people, uh, through humble, small churches, uh, through individuals and families 
Your gospel will go forth to the ends of the earth with your power, with your authority, with your uh, ability to open mouths to speak and open hearts to believe. Lord, I pray that you would inject in us a sense of that calling and a sense of that confidence that we too would go forth, whether it is to the ends of the earth or whether it's to the end of our street. We would go and we would make disciples that you, Lord, would return and return quickly. We pray in Christ's name.